So last week we started this new series called How to Be Rich, or the Be Rich series. The whole purpose last week was to convince you of something that you aren't ready to admit. In fact, I'm going to suggest that if you weren't here last week that you go online to our website and you find the sermon because the rest of the series doesn't make sense unless you agree to the principle from last week. Last week we looked at, we titled it, Rich People Problems. Problems that rich people have. And we talked about their uh, sense of denial that they're rich, their lack of being able to ever be content. They always want more. They're never satisfied. And that they depend on their wealth. And then we took that argument and applied it to us. And so the thing that I tried to convince us of last week that is foundational for the rest of what we're going to do over the next three weeks is that we are in fact rich. And if we are in fact rich, then we need to learn how to be good at it. And we use some numbers and those kind of things, and we're not going to do all that today, but you can go back if you're unconvinced, you can go back and listen. But just these simple couple of numbers. That if your household makes around $35,000 a year, you are in the top 4% of wage earners worldwide. And if your household makes between forty-five dollars and $50,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of wage earners worldwide. And we all kind of agreed that before we walked in here last week, if we would have said to us, what does rich mean? The top 1% of the world would be considered rich. So today, I don't want to convince us any more of that. I hope you're already kind of there. But I do want us to realize our position in society and where we are and then talk about how to be good at being rich. I was thinking about that this week. I uh, was reminded of a hashtag that's out there. How many of you know what a hashtag is, right? And so on social media, hashtag something, you know, also known as the pound sign from the old phones. Remember? Y'all remember phones that had the pound sign on it, right? And so um, there is this hashtag out there that is hashtag FWP. Anybody know what that stands for? First world problems, right? And the idea is that we have problems that really are problems only here. That if you were in a third world country and you sat down and tried to explain these problems to somebody in a third world country, they would look at you like, what in the world is wrong? I mean, that cannot be a problem. It's kind of like if you, making forty-five, dollars $50,000 a year, tried to sit down with an extremely impoverished individual in a third world country and explain to them the financial pressures that are on your life because of your second or third car and the house that you bought. So here are examples of just some FWP, all right? First of all, there was one that was said, I'm having pillow trouble tonight. One pillow is too thin. Two pillows is too high. I changed my email password, and now I have to re-enter it in my desktop, in my iPad, and my iPhone. It's terrible, isn't it? Tragic. Now, some of you are acting like you've never had thoughts that are... Similar, like, oh, I've got to change that again. Just finished supper, can't find enough room in my refrigerator for the leftovers. Y'all, some of y'all have done that, all right? 
It's that time of year when it's cold enough outside that the air conditioner never kicks in, but not cold enough outside to actually cool down the house. And this one, now I want to admit, the last one is is tragic. It's perhaps the most tragic one on the list and one that we can all sympathize with. Went to Krispy Kreme today. The hot donut light was off. Man, I mean, that's rough right there, isn't it? Dude, I know. I saw I saw a pastor online complaining the other day because one of the Krispy Kremes in his area left it on all the time. And he would go in there, it wasn't the hot. And he was mad about it. But uh, let's all admit, can we just admit for a minute that a hot Krispy Kreme donut right off the conveyor belt is like the closest thing you're going to get to heaven this side. Amen. I mean, it is unbelievable, all right? So we have these issues and we deal with them and we think of them as problems when in reality they're not really, they're rich people problems, right? We have them because we have so much and we can complain about it because we can complain so much. Just like all those rich people that are never satisfied. We complain about stuff that isn't that big of a deal. And so our premise for this series is as rich people we need to do it well. We talked about a letter last week that Paul wrote to his protege, the guy that he was mentoring named Timothy. And it's 1 Timothy chapter 6, and it's these verses, and they'll be on the screen. Because he says to them to command those who are rich in this present world. And that's why last week was so important. Because if you don't think you're rich, then you think the rest of this doesn't apply to you. But it does. Now, again, I'm not asking if you feel rich. If I ask you if you feel rich, nobody's going to respond because you never feel rich because almost all of us spend everything we got. It's not whether you feel rich, it's whether you are rich. And he says, command those who are rich in this present world. And he gives them these commands, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. And then the next verse, this is where we're going to focus for the next few weeks. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so they may take hold of it, a life that is truly life. One of the premises behind this series is simply this. Most, Most rich people are not good at being rich. In fact, statistics show that the least generous percentage-wise people in this country are the wealthiest. That the wealthier you get, the less percentage-wise you actually give. And so for the next few weeks, I want us to practice being rich. Now, again, I'm not asking you to feel rich or what it's like for you to be rich. I want us to practice. Even if you say, listen, even by those standards you gave us, worldwide stuff, the 30,000, the 35,000, I'm not rich by those standards. And just for the next few weeks, let's pretend. We like to play pretend, right? Let's pretend that we're rich and practice it. In order to do that, I want to answer two foundational questions today. And then next week we're going to talk about rich and good deeds. And the next week we're going to talk about generously giving. But today I want to talk about two foundational questions to the issue of living rich. And the first question is a simple one. It's a, a, a question that you ask on any time you have any kind of motivation to do anything. And it's simply the question of why. 
why be generous? Why be compassionate? Why help people out? And if I ask you that question just in general, if I ask our society in that question just in general, they will tell us, well, it just, it just feels good. It just feels right. It, it, everybody knows that, that you feel better when you, you give. It's um, just something that, that I think we should do. But I want to tell you today that that's something you've been taught. It's not something that's natural. It's not natural to give. It's not natural to be um, generous. It's not natural to help other people out. You know how I know that? Because what natural is, is preschool. Right? I mean, that's natural. That's people that are learning what it means to be a human being. They're little bitty human beings running around. And I have never had to tell one of my four kids to stop sharing. Right? You are doing way too much sharing. I've never had to break up a fight between my two boys about who is sharing the most. You know the favorite word of a four-year-old, right, is mine. And honestly, it's kind of the favorite word of 40-year-olds. Mine. It's ours. We are naturally selfish people. They never had to say, you just quit sharing your stuff. Because naturally, in our sin nature, we are selfish people. We are people concerned about us, concerned about our needs, concerned about our wants, concerned about our desires, taking care of our health, taking care of who we are. And as a result, we become people that are inwardly focused. It is not natural to want to be generous and to give. And it's kind of been that way through history. In fact, I did a little research this week, and it seems that the first real teaching I can see about extravagant generosity about giving about those kind of of issues of compassion and and sharing come from the new testament and when jesus taught it it was counter cultural now the reason as americans we kind of just think it's ingrained in our society part of who we are i mean you realize that if there is an international tragedy the first people to show up on the scene almost always are us With relief, with help, with aid, with finances. If something happens, we are a giving people. The American people in general are that way. And the reason we are is because even as much as we're trying to deny it today, our country was founded and our uh, understanding of the world is based upon an understanding that comes from New Testament teaching. In the New Testament, the idea is that we ought to be free in our giving, generous in our living. In fact, it bases everything about what we do on the fact that we serve a God who is generous, and as a result, we need to live a life that is generous. One way to say that is, in the New Testament, God's extravagant generosity towards us compels us to be extravagantly generous towards others. You want to know why? That's the why of the New Testament. God's extravagant generosity towards us compels us to be extravagantly generous towards others. Now, there's another way that this is kind of said, um, and Jesus is the one that teaches it, and we call it the golden rule. You know what the golden rule is, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And the idea is you imagine what others would do for you, and if what would you would like to have done, and then you do that, you serve that, you serve them in that way. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. In the New Testament, this is found all the way through it. And the idea comes from the fact that we serve an extremely extravagant, generous God. 
A few weeks ago, we talked about the parable of the prodigal son. And there are a lot of people that say that that is mistitled because even though the son was reckless in his spending, the story is really about the father who is reckless with his love. Extravagantly generous. Now, in case we kind of miss that point, I want you to turn in your Bibles if you've got them to Philippians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, it'll be on the screen. If you've got one, I want you to turn there. Philippians chapter 2. This is Paul, again, now writing to a church that he loved dearly, but that may have had some issues with, um, like, taking care of each other. In Philippians chapter 2, we have this kind of um, out there from Paul writing to these people about how they ought to treat one another. And he tells them in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, first of all, he says, do nothing. Now, let's just stop there for a minute. You, you know what the word nothing means, right? What does the word nothing mean? Nothing, right? This is not complicated. This is not, let's get into the ancient Greek here. This is just nothing means nothing. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And I know that the red flags start going up in you. Wait, 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 wait. Nothing? I mean, I understand giving a part, like it's the holidays, we're going to do stuff for our family and then we'll add a little extra stuff over here we're going to do out of generosity. But do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And then he says this. But in humility, value others above yourself. Value others above yourself. Now let me ask you a quick question. What others is he talking about there? Others that you like, is that what he means? Others that think like you do, is that what he means? When he says others there, how many others does he mean? All. All others. Now, he says, not that we, listen, he's not saying diminish your own value. He's just saying humility, you treat them as if they are higher, better than you. Now, the You've had this done for you, probably, and you really liked it. If you've ever been to a really good restaurant, or you've ever stayed in a nice hotel, you've had people treat you as if you are more valuable than you really are. I mean, every time you go through the line at Chick-fil-A, they tell you, it's been my pleasure. Now, you know that all the time it's been their pleasure. I've seen some of you at Chick-fil-A. It's not always their pleasure, but they say my pleasure. I was thinking about this week um, when Susan and I got married, we uh, went on our honeymoon and we went to Hawaii. Uh, Anybody ever been to Hawaii? Yeah, it's a great place. Now, generally, let's be honest, to be to go to Hawaii, you have to kind of have some cash flow. And there are lots of people in Hawaii that have lots of cash flow. And Susan and I, we, we. we're on our honeymoon, so we got married on Saturday night. We flew out on Sunday morning, and uh, we get on the plane, and the first thing that happens is we get on the plane, we're checking in. Oh, where are you going? Oh, where's your final destination? You know, having conversation um, with the baby. Oh, we're going on our honeymoon. We're going to Hawaii. They're like, oh, you're going on your honeymoon? Well, we're going to upgrade you to first class. Woo! Not, not on the whole flight, just on the Dallas flight, all right? We didn't get the Hawaii flight in first class. But we get in first class, and all of a sudden, this is like a new experience, Right? Wow, people fly like this? This is awesome, right? And we got there, and we we were staying at a place that uh, we didn't know anything about. Our our travel agent, who 
Um, some of you that in Brazil hear me talk about Phyllis. Phyllis is the one that booked all this for us. Phyllis still books all our uh, Brazil travel. Phyllis was said, I don't know anything about this place. It's just open. There are really good rates here because it's just open. I can lock you in here. And, and I had been saving up working and saving up for the honeymoon. And so it, met, it fit into our budget. We were excited about it. But we got there and we didn't realize that this was one of the finest resort properties in Hawaii that was just opening. It's a place that pro bowlers would stay when they went over for the NFL Pro Bowl. And so we walk in and we tell them we're on our honeymoon. Oh, we're going to upgrade you to an ocean view room. It was the first room I'd ever been in my life that everything was controlled by the phone. Like the air was on all that. And so we, this room and we're there and we go down and one day and we're at the pool. They had their own man-made lagoon, but we were at the pool. And I just remember turning to Susan and saying, we are by far the poorest people who have ever stayed at this place. We were, we had graduated college in May. We got married in July. We had not started working yet. We were po, all right? And we were sitting around people talking about their Riviera vacations, like the French Riviera. Not like we sometimes talk about the Redneck Riviera. They were like the French Riviera. They were talking about the Mediterranean. They were talking about their yachts. And Susan and I were like, we got a, I got a Honda Accord back home, all right? <laughs> but here's what happened. They treated us just like we were one of those Riviera people. Paul says to Timothy, or Timothy to the Philippians, treat others as if they have more value than you do. All others. Then he continues and he says, let each of you not look only to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of there are those others again. Can I just tell you, this is a little side note here. If you want to radically revolutionize your marriage, start practicing those few words. I've never heard of a marriage breaking down because both partners were actively seeking the best interest of their partner. But I have seen many break down because they're actively seeking their own. You want to radically revolutionize any relationship in your life? Begin to treat others above yourselves and look not at your own interest, but at the interest of others. In a case we're still kind of wondering, okay, those are still commands. Let's talk about why here. And here's the why, he says. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now earlier we talked about the golden rule. And the golden rule is that we are to do unto others as we would have them do unto you. Well, I want to give you a, what's a, what's a better metal than gold? Platinum. I'm going to give you a platinum rule today, alright? Here's the platinum rule. Do unto others as Christ has done unto you. Now we don't have all this up there, but I'm just going to read it to you, but Most of you know this passage of Scripture. You know what happened. But he says, have this mind in your relationships. Have this mind which is in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account quality with God something to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Let me ask you just a quick question, all right? 
Are you more valuable than Christ? But the correct answer is no. All right. Are you more valuable than the godliness of Jesus? No. And yet scripture says he left that and valued you as greater than himself. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus here today, that may not impact you. But if you're a follower of Jesus and you know anything about what Scripture teaches about Jesus, it is an inconceivable thought that the God of the universe who spoke and creation happened considered me valuable enough to trade his godliness, his reign, his rights for me. In fact, one modern translation of that says that Jesus leveraged who he was for our benefit. In fact, if you look through his life, Jesus never leveraged his wealth, what he had, for himself. He always leveraged it for other people. And as amazing as that is, don't forget that just a couple of verses before that, it says, and your relationships have the same mindset as Jesus. It tells us in Philippians 2 there, that he gave up equality with God, something that there's a beautiful picture that he didn't hold on to it, but he let it go. He released it and emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and found in human form, but humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. We cannot fathom the distance from the right hand of his heavenly father, who he is equal with in divinity, to the cross of man made by us as the most excruciating, difficult way to die in the history of the world that is what he left and did to leverage his power for us verse 12 this will be on the screen chapter 2 says therefore my dear friends as you have always obeyed he loved this church he says Listen, you've done what I've asked in my presence, but you're also doing it now not in my presence. He says, and this verse has been misunderstood for for many years, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's not telling us there that we somehow have to secure our salvation through what we do or the way that we work. He is not suggesting in any way that you or I have a part in establishing our salvation through our works. What he's saying is, now that you have been given this great salvation, because Jesus has left leveraged his godliness in order to give you life, you must now live it out in the way that you live among other people, the way that you act among other people. And as you work out your salvation with this fear, with this reverence, with this awe, with this understanding of who God is and what he has done, that you understand that God is the one that's going to work in you to will and act according to his purpose. And the point is, the way we work it out is that in our relationships we have the mindset of Christ and we value others more highly than us and we think of the interest of others above our own. And at the end of this little passage, Paul says to them that if you do that, if you accomplish that, you will shine like stars in the sky. The first century church did not gain traction in spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ because they were theologically better at argument. In fact, when you really think about it as Christians, those of us that are followers of Jesus, our theology is pretty strange, right? I mean, our whole, our whole thought system, we've staked our life on the belief that there was a man who was God who died and then 
came back from the dead. And they didn't win because that argument somehow won the day. That's not what propelled them forward. What propelled them forward, we see in the book of Acts, is their unbelievable, extraordinary, extravagant generosity with one another. The way they impacted the world, it says in the book of Acts that they took care of one another, that no one had a need, not a single person in their midst had a need, and the world around them noticed, and the Lord added to their number every day. It's because we are never acting more like our Heavenly Father than when we are extravagantly giving from the wealth He has entrusted us with. So I told you we're going to answer two questions today. That's the first one. Why? Because we live based on what God has done for us. And we're generous because he was generous to us. But the second question is shorter. The answer is much shorter. And it's just how? How? One of the things that we find in Scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 is this. And you don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. Remember this. This is Paul writing to another church. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Now don't, that means I'm not here to force you to give. I'm not here to make you feel guilty to give. I'm not here to say now that we've talked about this. Everybody put everything they got in their wallets into a plate. We've got to give everything we got. That's not the way it happens. He says you need to decide in your mind. You need to reason in your mind and say because what God has done, we have decided not under compulsion, not reluctantly, but God loves a cheerful giver. We need to decide to give. He says when you do that, You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. He says, listen, when you begin to live as a good, rich person, when you start to give, when you start to live, when you start to be generous in everything you have, with everything you have, and you give it away, you get a good reputation for God, and God's going to give you the ability to bless even more people. And I'm not talking about a get-rich scheme here. I'm not talking about if you give a 100, God will give you a 1,000. I'm just saying that Scripture does teach that if you effectively use what God has permitted you to use, He will give you more opportunity to have stuff to use for the glory of His name. God has blessed us with more than you need so that you make a difference in the life of others. I'm going to give you two quick ways. Now, a lot of times you think this is where the pastor is going to talk about tithing, this is where he's going to talk about offering, and we are going to talk about offering, but we're not going to talk about tithing today. Listen, it's not my job to convince you to tithe. My job is to let you fall more deeply in love with Jesus Christ and follow him more closely. And I firmly believe that when you're following Jesus with all your heart and you're living with him, you're going to want to do that. But I am going to tell you about two opportunities for us in the coming weeks to extravagantly give. The first one comes up in two weeks. It's something we do every year. It's called Operation Christmas Child Shoeboxes. Two weeks from today, I know that's hard to believe, two weeks from today we're collecting them and we're sending them off. The deadline is two weeks from today. How long is it? Two weeks from today, November 23rd. And here's the thing, we've always done good with shoeboxes and we have... You know, a couple of hundred, some some years, some years a little less than that. But really, I mean, it's not difficult in our church to think about every person, every family 
doing what is equal to their task. And so if you are a husband and wife, and that's two people in your family, it really shouldn't be difficult for you to give two boxes. And if we did that, we have over 400 that attend on a regular basis here. We could double what we've done in the past. That's not hard. You give. It's one of those things that you give. None of that stays here. You know, we don't go through the boxes and go, Woo, I like that toy. I'm going to keep it here. And it goes. We send it away. We don't know where it goes. It's an example of just extravagant giving. Just give. Let it go. Two weeks from today. Now, youth, y'all are going to be retreat that week. So if you're going to bring it to the church, guess when your deadline is? Next week. All right? And we are out of boxes. So, you may have to spend a little more to get you a box, all right? We've got boxes coming in, but they'll be in the middle of the week. If you want the official shoebox from Samaritan's Purse, we'll have some of those this week. But if not, just go get a box. But that's an opportunity for you. Here's a second opportunity, and this is going to be something we've never done before. We're calling it giving extravaganza. Doesn't that sound big? Yeah, apparently not. That that's, sounds good to me, all right? December 14th, here's what's happening, all right? This is not a guilt thing. This is not an offering thing. We're going to take our regular offering that day, and so this is above and beyond that. But on that day, on December 14th, I'm going to ask you, we're going to ask you as a congregation to ask the Lord to think about it. That's why we're doing it in a month so that we don't do it today and everybody pours stuff in just out of emotion or guilt. I want you to think about it. It's in the middle of the holiday season. I want you to think about giving a significant gift that day And I'm going to tell you what we're going to do with it. We're not going to use a dime of it here. We're going to give it away to people in our community that are doing good work to help people that are in need. So we're going to take it in through missions committee and staff and others. We'll investigate groups and and we're not going to go in there with a list of questions. Do you agree with every doctrinal belief we have? Only criteria is are you really helping people? you helping people that are hungry be fed? Are you helping families that don't have the ability to have Christmas? There's schools around here that have kids that need help having Christmas. And are you, can we help you with that? You're in the business of helping rescue women that are in uh, danger of being trafficked. We, we want to help you with that. Now, whatever we take in that day, every bit of it, it is a second offering, a special offering. Not a single dime of it's going to stay here. It's going to go into our community as a gift of extravagant, no strings attached love to say to our community, we are about living generously. December 14th. You got between now and then to pray and to think about it and allow God to kind of put it on your heart. Live your life. Understanding what God has done for you. And then do that for other people. Do more. Give more. Be good at being rich. Let's pray together.